All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Don't stand yet. We're going to be there in just a minute. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. If you found your place, stand with me if you would. And we will get to the message today. The time is ticking away, and these thoughts are a little longer, so I'm going to work hard to get us through it. Today I'm going to take a, big, a bigger chunk of, uh, of uh, Scripture to preach from. Last week we were in, in chapter 8 and we looked at some of chapter 7. And, and sometimes in Ecclesiastes the thoughts aren't like just laid out in a linear way. And so we're, you know, we're going to go from this thought and then we skip a few verses and then that's that same thought again. And so we're going to look at uh, chapter 8 verse 6 through 9 6. I'm not going to read all that right now. I'm going to let you be seated. I'm just going to read two or three verses here in chapter 9. But I want to let you know where we're going. So today I would ask you this. When you sit down, keep your Bible open because I'm going to say, now let's look at this verse. And then we're going to look at this verse. And we're going to look for some application that God might have from, for us from this text today. Okay, so chapter 9 verse 1. We're just going to read a few verses here and then I'll have you be seated. We'll pray and we'll get into the thought today. Solomon says, for all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. And, and I want you to catch this, the, the, the phrases here, because these are so important. He says, all things come alike to all. There is one event. Okay, one event to the righteous and to the wicked. One event. To the good and to the clean and to the unclean. To him that sacrificeth, to him that sacrificeth not. You give your offerings, you don't give your offerings. You're a good person, you're a bad person. There's one event. And he says, so is the sinner. He that sweareth, he that giveth an oath. So, you know, good and bad. These, these, these are polarities he's presenting us with. He said, everyone, there's one event. Verse 3, this is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, and again, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they, they go to the dead. For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. And, and, and there's the title today in the message in verse 4. To him that is joined unto all the living, and in those three words, there is hope. One event happens, but there's hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today, and I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. Help us to find uh, points of application for each of us individually as your Holy Spirit deals with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book that presents us with a lot of life problems. And so, you know, as individuals, as Christians, as we read God's Word, as we preach through it, we're presented with these problems. We look at a problem that Solomon presents us with, and we go, identify with that. Like, I, I feel that. I, I understand that tension in my own heart. I've had those types of questions. I understand and identify with the frustration Solomon is feeling. But unlike a self-help book, or even like a mystery book, we're presented with problems and we're given very few answers. Like Solomon doesn't solve all of it for us. In fact, he can't solve it all, and he admits that openly throughout the book. Here's all these problems, here's all these things I see in life, here's all these things I don't get, and then it's like, and I don't have a solution for you. They don't always have an answer. And as we work our way through the book, the answer is this. There's a God in heaven who does things the way that only a God in heaven could and would do, and our understanding is limited. And so what he is guiding us to and constantly steering us toward in this conclusion is simply this. We trust God. That's it. 
We, we learn to trust God. And so as we look at these problems, we learn to fear God because he's God. And we give him that place in our hearts. And with that fear comes this idea of, you know what? He does his things his way. And so we either choose to trust him and accept him or, or, or we don't. It's not just what we get at the end of life that matters. It's what we become along the way. Discipleship is a journey. It's not just a destination with an end. Okay. That being said, who we become matters. Not just the end matters. The end does matter, though, too. And so there is one event, he says, that happens to all. And he makes sure he spells it out in the text this morning. So, yes, does the journey matter? Does the process matter? Yes. Is there an end? Okay, I want you to look at chapter 8, verse 6. So if you still have your Bibles open, here we go. Okay, we're going to start covering some of this, some real estate in, in between chapter 8 and 9 this morning. Verse 6, he says, Because to every purpose there is time and judgment, therefore the misery of man is great upon him. For he knoweth. Okay, what's this misery that's great upon man? This is really dramatic language, right? Here's this great mis uh, misery. For he knoweth not that which shall be. We, don't know, we have more problems than we have answers, and we don't even know what the future holds. And who can tell him when it shall be? Now, what's he speaking in the context of? Well, the day you die. You don't know it. You can't predict it. It, it doesn't, it's not on your terms. And he says in verse 8, There is no man that hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, neither hath he power in the day of death. And, just in case you don't get it, there is no discharge in that war. What does no discharge mean? Okay, that's like you go to the military and you sign up and then you get what? Discharged, honorably disarmed, whatever you get at some point, you get discharged, you get released from service. When it comes to death, there is no discharge from that war. You don't get out of it. Like you, you have to go through it. There's no release, there's no escape. You have to die. How's that for some encouragement this morning, right? It's the week of Halloween, it's rainy, it's cold, it's wet, and we're going to talk about hope. We're gonna get, we'll get there. I'm steering that direction, but we're, we're far from it this morning. At times, it seems like we are actually incapable of believing it, death. It feels so far off and distant and foreign to us, especially to those this morning who are, who are younger, there are times when, though, when death confronts us, um, and it's often unexpectedly, and it's in a very personal way, and it's so direct that we can't deny it. And so maybe it's, it's someone that's a celebrity status or that we know about or we like or dislike, but they're a well-known figure, and suddenly they die. And maybe it's somebody that's our age or close to our age, and all of a sudden we, we we're confronted with the reality of death. Maybe we attend a funeral of a, of a loved one or friend, and we attend that funeral, and, and during that hour-long ceremony, we're sitting there, and the whole time we're staring at this casket, we're thinking about this person, and all of a sudden we're confronted with our own mortality, that that will be us one day. Maybe it is that you drive by a, a grave site, or you, you go by a funeral home at some point, you see all the funeral markers, and you're driving down the highway, and you see that, and you think, man, you know, someday that's going to be me. Or maybe there are moments for all of us when we simply get lost in thought and there's these, there's these moments of deeper thinking that we all experience in reflection. And in a moment of crystal clarity, 
we suddenly remember our life is going to end. Like our life's going to stop. And Solomon says, that's right. He says, there is one event that happens to all. It doesn't matter how good you are, how bad you are. It doesn't matter what you give, what you don't give. You give offerings, you don't give offerings. You make oaths, you don't make oaths. It doesn't matter. He says, we all die. And we all have to be confronted with that reality. Everyone dies. There's one event that happens unto all. Romans says it this way, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. God created Adam and Eve. We read about it. You get to Genesis chapter 3, and all of a sudden, Eve makes a choice, Adam makes a choice, and sin enters into the world. And the Bible says, and death by sin. So sin comes in, death comes in, it's introduced into the human race. And so death passed upon all men, for all men have sinned. And, and we're all going to die. Okay, I, I want to come back, and we need to come back, because we need some resolution on the subject of death. But I want us to push the stop button on our thinking there, just the pause button for a second. I want to tackle another idea here that's a little theological, it's important, and then we're going to come back and pick up this theme in Ecclesiastes this morning. Solomon lived frustrated because as far as he could see, people who frequently did bad things still had good things happen to them. We have covered this theme, but it's repeating. And so throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he just wrestles with this idea, the wicked aren't punished like they should be, and it's not fair. Don't like it. Can't let go of it. Bad people have good things happen to them. And there's some really, really good people in the world. And really, really bad things happen to them. And he says, I just, I just can't let go of it. And so we see it again. Chapter 8, verse 14, our text today. There is a vanity, read with me, which is done upon the earth, that there be just men. These are good guys. Unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. What's he saying? Here's a man of character and integrity, and he's doing right. And the things that should be happening to wicked people happen to him. Don't like that. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. The things you would expect to be happening to the righteous. He's a good guy. He's got good morals and principles and integrity. And good things should be happening to him. And wicked things happen to him. And here's a wicked guy. And you expect that all these, these, these wicked things would be happening to him. But instead, it's like all these good things are happening to him. He said, this is also a vanity. Okay? This is the idea. He just continues to struggle with this idea. I want us to take a moment and establish, though, a baseline for what wicked means. Terms matter. They matter a great big deal. And wicked can mean many things. And it's easy for us to read a text like this and easily escape it and think, well, I'm not wicked. Okay, so let's establish this baseline. Wicked is an adjective. It's used to describe persons who live in sin or transgress God's law. Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful above all things. And, and then he, he's going to go ahead and describe how wicked it is. He says, And desperately wicked. Who could know it? The heart. Like everyone's heart. It's desperately wicked. Romans 3, 23. All have sinned. Like, Every one of us. Romans 3.10 tells us, There is none righteous. 
And in case you don't know what none means, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. So just in case you missed the none part, just want to make sure that's clear. None, no, not one is righteous. Like, make sure you understand that. Our hearts are wicked and they're sinful. So what is the baseline for wicked? What is our standard here? We are. We're the standard. We're, we're the definition. Okay. We are all going to die. And because of our wickedness, transgression of God's law, we all will go to hell. Period. End of conversation. There's none righteous. No, not one. Only righteous gets into heaven. Only perfect goes to heaven. It is the payment of our sin. It is the result and the consequences of our wickedness. And we all are. Only righteous people go to heaven. So who's going to heaven? Only the righteous people are going to heaven. Well, how do you get righteous? Great question. It's an important question. We can't do it on our own. We can only do it through Jesus Christ, and it's why we need Him so much. It's why Chase sang a minute ago, and here's a guy who's experienced the love and mercy and goodness of Jesus Christ saying, if it weren't for Jesus, I'd be lost. And it's true. Our wickedness can't get into heaven, but our righteousness through Jesus Christ can. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For He hath made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. He himself was perfect, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It was the shedding of blood that was the remittance of our sin. It was Jesus' blood. And it's through our faith and our belief in him that he becomes the filter and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And it is now positionally, now I am righteous through the blood of Jesus that when God looks at my life, because I've put my faith in him, he doesn't see the sin of Daniel, he sees the righteousness of Jesus that has blotted out the transgression of my sin and wickedness. That's what God sees. It's really important that we understand what righteous means and what wickedness means in a positional sense. Positionally, I would go to hell. Minus Jesus. Positionally, I'm going to heaven because of Jesus. It's not based on what you do. It's based on a decision of your heart. Okay, that's positional righteousness and that's positional wickedness. And it's really important we understand that. Okay, once a person is saved, though, does that mean they're righteous and just automatically? I mean, are you one of the good guys? Okay, there's positional righteousness, and then what I'm going to call today, there's practical righteousness, and there's practical wickedness. And I think that's what Solomon is talking about today. He's not talking about those that are going to heaven, those that are going to hell, because he's observing people in the decisions that they make in life. Now, I could be saved, and I am. I can still do some bad things. I can be angry. I can be bitter. I can be mean-spirited. I can commit crimes. I am still positionally on the blood of Christ because I trusted Jesus. But practically speaking, I'm not a really good guy. Practically speaking, sometimes you're not a really good person either. And we struggle with this in a, in a, in a practical sense. First Peter chapter 1, 
Peter highlights this. He says, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts and your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy. So then he says, so be ye holy in all conversation. What's he saying? In your conduct, in the words you say, in the, in the ways that you act, be a good person, be a holy person. Okay, this is written. He says, be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, positionally, I am holy. But practically speaking, a lot of times we struggle with this idea of holiness. There are people who are saved. They're positionally righteous, but they continue to live in sin. And we would use this term this morning from the text. Practically speaking, they're acting in a wicked way. And then there are those who, though not perfect, they're living a holy, they're living a righteous lifestyle. And this is a condition of the heart. It's something Jesus highlighted in Luke chapter 18. So he was speaking in a parable. It says in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, he spake this parable unto certain. Now, who's he speaking to? Certain people which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So they think, I'm a really good guy. And Jesus says this, but we know they're not a good guy. We know they're not acting right. Why? How do we know that? Because they despised others. Okay, this, isn't, this, is, this is where they were practically speaking. They didn't like people. They didn't like some people, and they treated them poorly. So he gives an example, tells a story. Two men go to the temple to pray. Okay, let's not escape this idea this morning. These are two guys who went to church. They walk into church together. Okay, so this is their temple. For us, it's our church. These are two members of the church, and they walk in. One's a publican and one's a Pharisee. Okay, now let's not get lost on those terms. You know, that's a whole other text, and, and we're not going to deal with that this morning. Okay, let's not get lost on what they were or who they were. Just two guys that go to church. And one guy goes in, and the Bible says this. This is, this is what Jesus says. He says, I'm a good guy. I, I didn't extort anybody this week. I was just. I haven't committed adultery. Um, I fasted this week twice. Like I gave up food twice this week. It's pretty cool. He's feeling good about himself. Still a little hungry from it. When I walked in, I gave my tithes. Actually, they were deposited automatically last night, which is even better because I'm awesome. Okay. So he's like, I, d- I checked all the boxes. <clears throat> Put on my tie today. <laughs> got my suit. Got my tithing done. My fasting's done. I did all the spiritual boxes that anyone can check. I didn't commit adultery this week. I mean, I, I'm not, like, look at, okay, that guy, like the publican. Like, that guy, like, he's a sinner. It's obvious. And I got it all together. Okay, we wouldn't, like, say that. It's easy to think that. He's just thinking, and he, what, what's he doing? He's despising another person. He's thinking poorly of someone else. Shows up, that lazy bum. Don't do anything. Okay, and here's the other guy who's just pouring out his heart to God saying, God, I know I screwed up this week. I know I didn't do the right things right. I know I'm, I'm a mess. And I, God, I need your help. God, I need you. Outwardly, they can look the exact same. But inwardly, that's what God's looking at. It's what he's assessing. It, it, it's, it's, what he, it's what he cares about. And here's one man, outwardly they look the same, but here's one guy who is righteous and just, not because of all the things he did, but because of the condition of his heart. And here's another guy who did all the outward things right, and he's wicked. He's so far from where God wants him to be in his spirit, in his heart, in his attitude, in the way he treats other people, because that's what matters most. 
Okay, one's righteous and one's wicked because his attitude's wrong, his heart's wrong. One's practically righteous, one's practically wicked. Everyone messes up in life. We've all sinned, we all fall down. But some people look at their mistakes and go, man, I blew it, and I'm going to get back up and God help me. Proverbs 24, word Solomon wrote, for a just man falls seven times, and he keeps tripping over the same thing, but he gets back up. But the wicked fall into mischief. They just, they just aren't even thinking about it. They're just not engaged. They're not thinking about it. They're just going forward. There are some who are working hard at right living. These people would be considered practically righteous. They're working to do right. Working to fight sin in their life and heart. Working at resisting self-centeredness. What's practically wicked? Well, sometimes for our purposes today, and I know this can go deep theologically, so I want to keep it at, 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 at a level that's applicable, and it's under a reasonable time limit. <laughs> practically wicked is sometimes like this, indulgent, lacking discipline, not correcting self, not getting right, not paying attention. Sometimes it's as simple as apathy, a limited concern for other people, just walking into church and just literally thinking about yourself and not other people. It's apathy. It's the idea of no enthusiasm for the Christian life, hearing the music sung and all you can do is sit there and judge it instead of valuing it for what it is and finding something to contribute to in your spirit and heart. Apathy. Laziness, spiritual, mental, emotional, psychological, laziness, not working on becoming a better Christian, not refining your character, not coming to God with the spirit of help me. Instead, it's like, I'm okay. Not growing, not getting better. Same person, year after year. James said, faith without works is dead. And if you aren't working against sin in your life, then sin is growing in your life and it's controlling you. Solomon's frustration wasn't with those who messed up, got right with God. Messed up again, got right with God. He understood frailty in the human heart of man. This is what he was frustrated with. He was frustrated with those who did wrong, and then it seemed like they benefited. They cop an attitude with authority. They're mean-spirited. They're unfriendly. They're self-centered. The salesperson lies and gets richer. The student cheats and gets better grades. The coworker cuts corners and gets promoted. Person at church has a bitter heart, gets a lot of attention and sympathy from others. The guy doesn't tithe yet, he drives a nicer car. Wicked people, practically speaking, are supposed to suffer. And Solomon's like, but they're not. In fact, it looks like life gets better for them. And he says, it's not fair. If God is righteous, if, if he's really righteous, then we expect him to reward the righteous. And we expect Him to be harsh on those who are wicked and punish them. And too often the exact opposite is true. There seems to be a, a reversal of retribution and reward. Okay, so these questions come to Solomon. And maybe they've come to you this morning if you're honest. What's the use of being righteous? Like why work at it if there's no difference in the way they're treated? If there's no reward or, 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 or there's no carrot, there's no stick, why try? If bad people get a good life, what do we gain by godliness? One theologian said, this is repugnant to reason. <laughs> okay, remember when I talked about let's go back to death? Let's do it. 
everyone dies. The good, the bad, the ugly. They all come to an end because everyone dies. And each of us has to face death alone. And now Solomon wants to make sure that the reader understands that this tension point he struggled with and that you may struggle with too, that there is a disadvantage in death after having lived a wicked life. See, all we can see is this life. All I can see sometimes is that good guys, they suffer. And sometimes all I can see is that bad guys, life's okay. But that's all I can see. Solomon says, yeah, well, let's take one step beyond the grave. And let's look at eternity that lasts forever. Hey, now the landscape changes. Now everything shifts into a different level of perspective. The difference between the wicked and the righteous may not be observable in this life, but the gulf between the two cannot be wider in the life to come. I want you to look at chapter 8, verse 12. He says, Though a sinner do evil an hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before Him. Okay, verse 13. But it shall not be well with the wicked. Neither shall he prolong his days, which are his shadow, because he feareth not before God. You take one step past that grave, and all of a sudden... There's a big difference between having lived a good, righteous life and having lived a wicked life. Okay, both positionally and practically. It's a great big gulf between the two. You may see the wicked prosper, but that does not mean they won't reap the seed that they have sown. It's coming. In life, there may not be a big difference between the two, but in death, there is a massive difference. And Solomon's going to press this point. So verse 11. Chapter 8, verse 11. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set on them to do evil. Okay, there's a principle there for those in positions of authority. That's not his application or main point. His main point is this. Delayed judgment does not mean no judgment. That's his point. Just because you don't see judgment in this life doesn't mean judgment's not coming. What's he really saying here? God doesn't always execute evil speedily. God himself doesn't. But he does execute judgment. And it may not be as fast as you want him to be, but it's coming. And it's final. And it's a big deal. And men use this as an excuse to continue to sin. But all they're doing is taking advantage of a merciful God. And Paul points this out in Romans chapter 2. He says, As despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that God's good and he's longsuffering and he's kind. He's going to give you all the time in the world to get right. He says, but not knowing that the goodness of God, he says it leadeth to repentance. That's the point. He's not executing judgment speedily because he, he wants you to get right. But after thy hardness and impotent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will? Okay, it's coming. You mark it down. You take one foot past the grave, this one event that happens to all, you get on the other side of that one event, and he will render to every man according to his deeds. What you did, your deeds. Okay, you get past this one event, and boom, boy, wow. I'm really glad I lived righteously, even though I suffered for it, or, wow, I've got some regret i got to deal with now, and some eternal pain. 
and suffering. God's kindness, God's goodness, not executing judgment speedily or mentally just to repentance, it's not going to go well with the wicked, positionally or practically speaking. There is a disadvantage in death after having lived a life that was wicked and giving no effort to being good and benevolent and sacrificial and kind. Okay, but there is hope. What's the hope? Well, in this life, okay, here's the one event that happens to all on this side of it. The wicked on this side have a really, really big advantage over the wicked on that side. Okay, these guys over here, they're living wicked. They're not doing right. And I say these guys, us guys, okay? So there's a really big advantage right now we have. When our attitude's bad, when our heart's not right, when we're languishing in apathy and indifference to the world and to people around us, okay, there's a big advantage we have over the guys that are wicked on the other side. And what's the advantage? Well, if you're still alive, you have hope. Verse 4. For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. It is better to be alive than it is to be dead, is what he's saying, especially if you're wicked. Why? Well, lions were considered noble and fearsome beasts. I'd rather be a lion than a dog. He says, yep. And, and, and by the way, dogs in their time, they weren't pets like they are today. <laughs> they, they were considered nuisances. They'd be like one of our rats. They don't, they don't like them. So he's saying it's better to be a live rat, a live dog, than he's a dead lion. It's better, even if you're wicked. Being alive is better than dead. Why? Because the living of hope. Okay, what's hope? Hope is a desire of some good. And it's accompanied with at least a slight expectation of obtaining it. A belief that it is obtainable. There is hope that you can still cha change. There is hope on this side of the one event. There's hope for today that you can become a different kind of person and work your way over to becoming a good person. There's hope. There's hope that you can change. Hope that you will work at pleasing God. Hope that your heart will fear Him. Hope that you can become better. The living know something that the dead don't know. And what do the living know? that the dead don't know, the living know they will die. Look at verse 5, first part. He says, for the living know that they shall die. The living know they're going to die, but they're not dead yet. The time hasn't run out yet. There is hope. You get to choose who you are and who you are becoming up until that moment in time, up until that one event that happens to all, the dead don't get to choose. One event happens to all and on the other side. You can't go back and change who you were. You can't redesign and restructure and become a different person. You're stuck with that for all of eternity. Look at the second part of verse 5. He says, the living know that they shall die. And he says, the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Verse 6, also their love and their hatred, their envy, it's now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. The dead can't become better. They can't go back and change a thing. They can't go back and say, I'm sorry. 
They can't go back and be kind to the people who they think are inferior to them. They can't go back and say, I wish I had redesigned my life with a job that allowed me to be in church more and around God's people. They can't go back in time and serve. They can't go back in time and say, you know what, I really wish I tithed and given more offering. You can't do it anymore. It's done. You can't go back and live with humility. You can't go back and make a difference. You can't go back and be an encouragement to people. Once it's over, it's all over. Look, you can choose to live righteously or you can choose to live wickedly. And because you're alive, you get to choose. You get to choose where you're going to spend eternity. Am I going to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and go to heaven? Or am I not going to do that and go to hell? And you get to choose who you are practically. And how you spend eternity. You get to choose where and you get to choose how you spend eternity. You get to decide right now how big a count in heaven you'll be, you'll have. You're deciding that now. How much reward is in heaven waiting for you? How much is going to be there? Okay. If we're alive, and I'm checking what I can see we all are at the moment. Okay. There's one event that's going to happen to us all. So we're alive. What's the best way to be alive? Okay, clock's running out on me here very quickly. Chapter 8, verse 15. He says, Then I commended mirth, because a man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat, drink, be merry, for that shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life, which God giveth another son. Chapter 9, verse 7. You, you listen fast, I'll talk fast, all right? Chapter 9, verse 7. He says, This is how you be alive. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, drink thy wine with a merry heart. For God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white. Let thy head lack no ointment. Live joyfully with the wife and thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity which he hath given thee under the sun. All the days of thy vanity for that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor which shall take us under the sun. Verse 10. Whatsoever thy find, hand findeth to do, do it with thy might for there is no work, device, knowledge, wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. Now I'm going to come back to that. I think I'm going to commit myself too hard. I think next week, next Sunday night, we'll come back and we'll look at that passage again. Okay. So let me just give you an overarching principle today. God wants you to live a joy-filled, happy life. Okay. He sees the hurt. He knows it exists. But there are things you can focus on. Solomon made this choice and it ruined him. He said, I'm just going to focus on all these wicked people, and good keeps happening to them, and it's not fair. And that's what he focused on. And you have bad in your life, because you've sinned, we've sinned, we live in a fallen world. There is plenty of bad to focus on. If you need some more bad to focus on, turn on your phone or TV, there's plenty out there, okay? There's, there's just volumes of it out there. There's plenty of bad. There's a lot wrong with your health and with your family and dysfunction and your character, all these things. There's a lot of good stuff too. And there's a lot of good people in the world and there's a lot of good to focus on. And when Solomon became so obsessed with the wicked, he lost his joy. He had no joy. And when, it's, when you live a joyless life, it's really hard to do right. It's really hard to be incentivized when you're not grateful, when you're not happy, when you're not, these things, doing right and being kind and all these things, when all you can think about is evil, is not going to come to you. 
And what he's saying here, this is the overarching principle. Be a happy person. Focus on the joy that there's peace in your life. Don't allow today's, today's injustices and sin to rob us of strength and goodness. Joy of the Lord is our strength, Nehemiah said. It is what propels us to do good and right. And Solomon understood this in a spiritual and psychological sense. You focus on negative, you're not going to do great things for God. You're going to drown in it. You're going to choke in it. But you can focus on the good in life and God's goodness and His glory and His majesty. Focus on the good in other people in your life and, and how good God is because these things are both are true. But you choose which direction you focus. And he's saying, look, the family you have, enjoy it. Whatever food you have, appreciate it. Whatever health you still have and the days you have left, man, thank God for them. And be a happy person. And do good. And live a righteous life. The purpose of having life is so that you can prepare for death. One event happens to us all. We are going to go there. It's going to happen. We will join the wicked, he said, or the, the, the dead. We will join them. But the purpose of having life is that you can prepare for death. Not death as an end, but death as a beginning of the life that is coming and will last forever. And we get stuck in our Christian thinking because we just think this, I'm in the church and I can't do anything. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too incapable. I don't have the gifts. It's not how God sees it. Life isn't about checking boxes of spiritual productivity. It's about becoming something beautiful and wondrous. It's about the kind of kindness and boldness that's supposed to be reflected on our faces that we looked at in the beginning of chapter 8. It's about honoring God in one's heart and reflecting His goodness. You're not dead yet. The one event hasn't happened to you yet. So there's hope. Well, hope for what? Well, hope for you to become a person of goodness. Hope for you to become a person of righteousness. Hope for you to become a person that's loving and kind and grateful and good. Use the time you have wisely. You're going to die once. You're going to live forever. And so let's be wise with the days that we have. The living know that they shall die. That's wisdom. So let's use it wisely. Let me ask you to stand today, if you would, heads bowed and eyes closed.